Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Atlantans who love to read have looked forward to Labor Day as the weekend of the Decatur Book Festival ever since it started 14 years ago. Though this year's events will be virtual, the offerings are rich and varied. Pulitzer Prize-winning poet and scholar Jericho Brown will deliver the keynote address today, and we'll hear from him later in the hour. Atlanta birder Jason Ward communicates his love for birds in a way that will leave you wanting to look up at the sky the next time you're outdoors and listen for birdsong closer to the ground. He'll share his excitement about the fall migration. First, the tale of the Pied Piper has some new twists in a clever new adaptation by David Stevens of All Hands Productions. The show is performed live via Zoom at the Center for Puppetry Arts. David Stevens and Beth Shavo, the Center's Executive Director, have Zoomed in now. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. Forget the pipes, because this show has the main character playing a banjo, and that's why his name is Peter Picker. How does the story unfold? Well, this is a, a sort of a, a take on the Pied Piper, the story that we know so well. I, I've always loved that story, but I wanted to sort of make it my own, and I'm a banjo player myself. So I, I thought that would be a, a nice change instead of the pipes to do the banjo. And then my story, instead of a, an infestation of rats, there are an infestation of silly roaches. <laughs> and all are on their way to the town of Hamlin. Okay, so the setting is the same. We've just, you've reimagined it in the best puppetry arts center fashion. David, I thought about the movie Ratatouille, which, which helped endear rats to viewers, at least for the duration of that movie. How do you make 
cockroaches seem cute. Well, uh, I think some of that has to do with the design of the puppet, but also just their antics. Uh, the, the main, uh, most of the show is a journey show about them trying to get to Hamlin because they have heard in a song I sing at the top of the show that the string beans taste like candy canes in the town of Hamlin. So they're off to find out for themselves if those string beans do in fact taste like candy canes. And it's just a, a series of antics that, that sort of endear themselves, I think, to the audience. But uh, the, the silly voices also help. When a cockroach talks like this, you know, it's a, you know, whatever. It's hard to not like that, right? Oh, I love it The cockroach has a New York accent. Well, of course. <laughs> well, so are cockroaches really misunderstood creatures? Oh, I, I think so. I think they're driven by one sole motivation, and that's food. <laughs> and I don't think that's unique yeah. just to cockroaches either. <laughs> well, so is there something central to this story about being more tolerant or maybe pausing to reconsider a creature that may not have appealed to you initially? I hope so. I think there are definitely some folks who see a cockroach in the show description or even a picture and they just sort of like, no, I don't know if I want any part of that. But then I think once they see the show, there is sort of a, uh, a change of heart, I, I think, uh, toward these, these silly characters. And, you know, I, I hope that's, uh, I think that's a universal effect of puppetry, that we have that effect uh, sometimes. Absolutely. And music is central to this show, as you mentioned, you are a banjo player, and I was hoping you'd talk about your role as musician in addition to puppeteer. Before you answer that, I just wanted to add, I could not get Hamlin Town, Hamlin Town, everybody's going to Hamlin Town, out of my head yesterday. It was an earworm or I guess an ear roach in this case. But please tell us about your role as musician in addition to puppeteer. Oh, well, that's, I think that's a very high compliment. I love it when people tell me uh, some of my music absolutely annoys them because at least it's in there. <laughs> I learned the, the trick to writing children's songs uh, or you know those kinds of songs is as much like writing a commercial jingle. It's gonna stick and uh, parents hate me, kids love me. <laughs> <laughs> but it establishes a memory. Like, they're not going to walk away forgetting that. And they're going to go home singing that song for about two weeks, <laughs> and then maybe they'll forget. So, yeah, I've been a banjo player for about 20 years or so. I started when I was in college, and uh, it just was a natural inclusion for my shows that there be some sort of musical element to it. Now, of course, I do all my shows solo, so there isn't a lot of room for me to be able to do both simultaneously. <laughs> so I can't really puppeteer and play the banjo at the same time. Uh, so when, I, when I figure out how to get more hands, then I'll, I'll, I'll figure that out. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so the song in the show is uh, Hamlin Town, Hamlin Town, everybody wants to go to Hamlin Town. People come from miles around because they all want to go to Hamlin style of banjo I'm playing there is called claw hammer and it's an old style of banjo playing where you use the backs of your fingernails and your thumb and you sort of get this rhythm going and then you just learn how to do that and then the sort of notes figure out where to go 
it is wonderful and that is that's an infectious style or an infesting style i guess in this case sure what does this show have to say about themes such as diversity and acceptance well i hope that it's a show that uh, teaches how characters of of any species can work together <laughs> this show has henny penny in it this show's got uh, a yeti in it <laughs> this show uh, besides the roaches too so i i think it's a, a matter of seeing how characters interplay with each other and how characters work together with each other to sort of uh, achieve similar goals pecker pete learns the value of learning to play music with other folks uh there's a band of roaches in the show called roach belly stompers and uh, Pete learns how to play music with that group of roaches, and which is an experience he's never had before. But it, it also teaches the value of playing together, working together, to make something better than what you started on your own. Mm. Tickets to this show include workshop instructions for creating one's own puppet. What will kids be able to create, or anyone who wants to create a puppet? Well, for this show specifically, we've got a, a cockroach puppet they can make. <laughs> so every two weeks, we do a different title through the Zoom programming here. And each show comes with its own puppet construction for a different puppet that correlates with the show we're doing. Uh, so this one happens to be a, a cockroach, uh, just like the show we did previous was the Reluctant Dragon, and kids got to make their own dragon string puppet. So this, the puppet will change for every title that we do through the Zoom programming. Yeah, I think it gives kids a chance at home to make something and to use their hands and engage their creativity and their imaginations. Uh, there's so many great resources here at the center uh, for learning how to make puppets. And hopefully seeing the show will inspire them because I do a demonstration following each performance that I explain how I make the puppets and some of the materials I use to make them. So hopefully, it's not uncommon that I get parents tell me, as soon as we show your show, we went to the craft store and we bought supplies. So I, I hope that's one of the things that, that triggers uh, from watching these shows is it engages creativity. This would be a great time for you to comment on a partnership that the Center for Puppetry Arts just announced. What can you tell us about the Varsity Tutors program? Absolutely. We are really excited to be partnering with Varsity Tutors. Um, Varsity Tutors is a national platform for online tutoring as well as academic and enrichment classes. And our um, goals are very much aligned in terms of wanting to reach students, particularly young children right now, as they're at home and making sure that when they are online that they're getting an enriched experience. So we've developed this partnership with them to have a STAR course, which is one of their special programs for unique classes on their um, platform. And we're part of what they're calling their Creativity Club offering of different classes. And so yesterday we had our first free class, which is how you start as a STAR course, you have a free class, and then after your free class, then people can sign up for, you know, paid bundles or individual classes at, you know, an, an inexpensive price as they join the Varsity Tutors platform. This morning I was reading in the paper how difficult it is for kids living in houses that don't have great Wi-Fi or any Wi-Fi who may not have 
up-to-date computers. How accessible can you make the center's resources for kids who only have the basics? That's a great question. You know, one of our goals is to reach as many children as we possibly can. Um, Right now we have our museum open and with that we want to make sure that there's interactivity with children as they come to the center. So we've created scavenger hunts for when they come to the center. So for those that aren't able to get online, perhaps they come to the center and then they're able to interact in a way that's really fun for them as opposed to just walking through the center, they can have this fun, engaging activity while they're at the center. And do you have timed ticketing or social distancing protocols once folks are inside the center? Absolutely. I had someone tell me yesterday they felt safer at the center than they did at their house. (laughs) (laughs) And, And we are extremely cautious. If you can come to our museum and not actually interact with anyone at the center physically. So we have our ticket booth is behind glass and we use a virtual concierge, which allows us to answer any questions, but we're doing it from a screen um, as opposed to being there in person. And the kids have really loved that. I mean, they love to look up and see someone on a TV screen saying hello to them and talking to them and asking them about their favorite puppet. So we've made sure that everything's really safe. We have time ticketing, um, social distancing um, by limiting the capacity of people we let in at one time. Um, It allows for social distancing. And we also clean throughout the day in um, formal periods where we scrub everything that could have come in contact um, with people during their visit. Oh, that is wonderful to hear. And of course, it is among the many extraordinary qualities of puppets that they are immune to COVID-19 and do not spread the disease. Yes, as far as we know, they are very safe. (laughs) (laughs) This has been a delight. Beth Chavos, the executive director of the Center for Puppetry Arts, David Stevens is a musician, puppeteer, puppet designer, creator, and the human star of the show, The Pied Picker. Thank you both so very much. Thank you, Lois. Thanks, Lois. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Jason Ward is an Atlanta-based birder and host of the web series Birds of North America. When we last spoke in May, the coronavirus pandemic was still something we were getting used to, 
and birds were migrating north for the summer. A lot has changed in just a few months, and we look forward to hearing more from him now. Jason Ward, thank you for joining us, and welcome back to City Lights. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for having me back. It was a treat the first time, and I'm looking forward to speaking with you again. Well, since our last conversation, certainly the coronavirus has become far more familiar a presence in our lives. A white woman falsely accused a black birder, Christian Cooper, of threatening her while Cooper was birding in New York Central Park, and the fall bird migration is upon us. Let's start with Christian Cooper. He has since accepted an apology from the woman while the Manhattan District Attorney is prosecuting her for falsely reporting an incident in the third decree. Jason, so much transpired with that one incident. It was so disturbing. What was your reaction when you first heard about it? Yeah, you know, I first saw the video um, earlier this spring and I know Christian personally, so immediately upon watching the video, I could recognize his voice. And shortly afterwards, I realized the kind of situation that he was in. And I know Christian to be a, you know, strong, confident man. And hearing the trembling in his voice and the nervousness in his voice as he was having this altercation it really shed light on how dangerous he perceived the situation to be. I myself felt that myself, even, you know, in the second hand while watching it from, from my couch, I felt, you know, a small degree of danger as well. I felt scared for him. And I'm just glad at, at the end of the day, you know, everyone came out unscathed, physically speaking. But um, it could have, you know, wound up being a really sad situation and, I think that is what really gets into the root of the issue here. The fact that she weaponized his blackness uh, against him and, and um, that, you know, unfortunately, that could have had some, some pretty grim circumstances at the end there. Well, I think it was pretty sad as it was. It's interesting to hear you say you heard the trembling in his voice. That could only come from having known him before, because I think what astonished me, and I'm sure millions of other people who viewed it, was Christian Cooper's composure. I mean, he was very calm in, in saying to her, there's nothing to fear, that's not true, and to have the presence of mind then to videotape her, and she was just unhinged and lying. It could have been catastrophic. Yeah, yeah, there's no doubt about that. And I wasn't surprised at how composed he actually was during that encounter. But once again, that that comes from knowing him personally. Um, 
you know, he handled that a, a lot better than, than a lot of us would have. Among the many feelings that I experienced while watching that video, one of them was just pure anger. And uh, I don't know if I would have, you know, been able to stick around and continue to record and capture all of the behavior that this woman was exhibiting while the altercation was happening. I probably would have walked away. And, you know, moments like these are, they're important in kind of starting a lot of conversation that comes afterwards and, and really getting us to turn a mirror around on, you know, the way that we interact with each other, the birding world as well. It, it, there a lot of interesting conversations have started as a result of that altercation in Central Park. Yeah, we look forward to hearing your thoughts on that. For those who may not have seen it, your very first episode on your web series, Birds of North America, featured Christian Cooper as a guest. How did you two meet? So my brother, who's been a birder for six years now, I've been birding for seven. My younger brother, Jeffrey, has been birding for six. He lived in New York and I lived in Atlanta and he knew Christian personally. They've worked together on a lot of different after school projects for kids uh, in, involving birds, of course. And when we were filming the pilot episode of Birds of North America, we were just kind of going with the flow. We knew that Central Park during spring migration was going to be a must visit, a go-to area for a lot of birders. So we knew that if we chose a nice sunny day, there'd be a good chance that we'd bump into some pretty notable birders that day. And Christian was on our list of birders that we wanted to converse with. And Christian was, he didn't have all day. He had, you know, work to get to. He had somewhere to be, but he was really, really kind with his time. And he just allowed us to you know, pull him aside for about 15 to 20 minutes and interview him, despite the fact that he had places to be after that. It's just a testament to how, you know, kind and thoughtful he is as a person. Did what happened to Christian Cooper change the way you approach birding, Jason? It did not. I'll say that because nothing that happened in that clip, as alarming as it was, nothing that happened surprised me. I had an idea that an interaction with, with those characters involved, with a black man, white woman, uh, and, and the black man, you know, in, informing the white woman that she should do X. I, I am aware that that could turn into some hostilities. So it has not changed my outlook on birding. It, I can't afford to allow it to change my outlook on birding because there's been decades and decades and decades of nature shows on TV and just wildlife enthusiasts in the public eye who have been white. And there, there isn't a face of representation for kids of color to look up to and, and, and aspire to be like uh, as they grow older. And fortunately enough, I have been granted a platform in which I am allowed to do this. And I'm doing this for the next generation of conservation superstars so that they can, you know, I can blaze trails for them so that they can do even better than, than the generation that's, that's living currently. So 
since I'm doing this for the future generations, I cannot afford to have my perspective change. I still have to go out there. I still have to produce content and I still have to reach out to communities that look like I do. And I will just add for anyone who may not have seen the video or heard about it, all he asked her to do was to put her dog on a leash, which was clearly stated on all of the signs in Central Park. Dogs are not supposed to be unleashed. Has what happened to Christian changed the way you talk about birding with other people of color? It has to an extent, because after the video, I saw a lot of comments from folks on the internet saying, you know, this is why I don't go to the parks, and this is why I don't partake in certain activities. And I don't think that that should discourage folks from partaking in those activities. However, I do think that there's a certain amount of caution that we should exercise when, if we do decide to go hiking or to go birding or just to go running in, in, in a space, right? So I highly recommend if you're going into a unknown area to go with a friend, you know, go, go with a buddy to just be cautious of your surroundings. There have been times where I've gone birding and I noticed that the cars that are passing me by are slowing down and they're getting longer looks and they're wondering what I'm doing there. And there's that, you know, that spidey sense that that kind of starts to tingle. And I realize, you know what, let me cut this short and, and leave this area before I wind up having an interaction that's less than pleasant. So I have inserted a lot of cautious messaging and my advocating for the outdoors when it comes to people of color. But I still, still highly encourage people to get out and explore and to experience nature. In June, you took part in organizing Black Birders Week. Please tell us about the event and, and how it was received. Yeah, so this came about due to a group me group that I started April of 2019. I started out as a group of about 10 scientists, black scientists, and it's grown over the year to over a hundred of us who live all over the globe. There are people who are, you know, living internationally in Germany and in and, and Canada and different countries, right? So when the Christian Cooper video reached our group, it was shared a couple of times and then conversations started and really quickly we realized that something had to be done, that it was time to change the narrative and, and shine a spotlight in celebration of black birders and black people in wild spaces. So several of the group members, Anna, Gifty, Danielle, Chelsea, Joseph, they were the ones who founded, who came up with the idea of Black Birders Week. And within less than 48 hours, we had the flyers designed. We had a itinerary of events. We had special guests, including Christian Cooper himself. And we did a couple of days worth of promotion on Twitter and on Instagram and Facebook. And we launched and it was received way wider and better than we ever expected. We were able to do interviews with Forbes, with CNN, with so many different publications out there. And we never imagined that it would be this popular. And it's inspired a lot of other people in different science disciplines to start their own weeks. We've seen 
Black Botanists Week. We've seen Black and National Parks Week. So we've seen a lot of other weeks kind of sprout up because of the movement that we started back in June. And that's exactly what the, you know, the intent was there. The intent was to get those conversations started, get people feeling a little bit uncomfortable because nothing changes unless people feel a little bit of discomfort there. So a lot of uh, productive conversations are starting. We still have a long way to go ahead, but the, the groundwork is being laid. That's fantastic to hear. Among those interviews you gave was one with our news reporter, Molly Samuel, which was great. Now, you've had all summer to go birding during a pandemic. Have fewer cars and fewer planes resulted in any surprises specific to birding? You know, that's a really good question. And I don't know truly if we'll be able to answer that question until a couple of years from now, until we're able to compare the data with uh, when things start to return back to normal. Then we'll start to see if this year, you know, there was any uh, peculiar changes in the patterns of birds. It, it sure seemed as if there were a lot more birds and a lot louder birds out there, but that could be attributed to the you know, less background noise from the cars and the planes kind of roaring by. So, but yes, what I have experienced is I've become a lot more familiar and intimate with the birds in my own neighborhood. Just being able to go outside every day or almost every day because it's been raining like nonstop over the past two weeks here in Atlanta. But um, being able to go out and really reconnect with the local birds because the past couple of years have been really exciting for me. I've been traveling a lot. So, of course, you know, this year, not a lot of travel. No. And um, I've been able to reconnect with the, the southeastern birds. Ah, now, we're in the midst of fall bird migration, even though fall does not officially begin for a few weeks. What does that look like for folks here in the metro Atlanta area? Are there any particular birds we should watch out for who might be passing through? You know, spring migration is magnificent. It's amazing. Fall migration is arguably better. And I say that for a couple of reasons. One, it's longer. So fall migration starts in August, in early August. You can argue that some, some will say it starts in late July. Wow. And it continues throughout the end of October. So we're in the midst of it right now. And things will really start to ramp up towards the end of September and the beginning of October. That's when things will be at its peak here in the Southeast. And the other reason why I love it so much is because it's a little more challenging than spring migration. And it's more challenging because the birds have molted. They've shed their, their bright, beautiful colorful feathers, and now they're wearing a duller coat. So they're tougher to identify, which I love the challenge of, of <laughs> you know, being able to identify those birds. And they're not singing as much either. So no, no need to try to attract the mate, no need to try to defend territories. They're just passing through for the most part. So they are a lot quieter this time, which of course is more challenging again for birders. And the weather is going in the reverse direction, right? So the leaves are falling off the trees and the weather's progressively getting cooler and cooler. And I love cold weather, so <laughs> bring it on. But yeah, so the warblers will start to trickle through 
all throughout September. We'll start to see a lot of birds of prey moving as well. And um, things just start to get real interesting around October. I love cold weather too, I'm with you. Interesting to hear about the shedding or molting, do you call it? Yes. It's sort of like fall fashion for humans with (laughs) colors are often more subdued or darker in the fall. What should we expect for winter birding in Atlanta? Mm. You know, winter birding is also very exciting. And I think that it's accentuated by the fact that we don't really have harsh winters here. So we still have manageable weather that we can go outside and enjoy nature in. And we're rewarded because ducks are everywhere. So right now, all of the really cool ducks are further north. And so right now in the summertime, we're dealing with mostly mallards and wood ducks, which are beautiful. But when the winter rolls around, then we'll start to get American widgeon, northern pintail, green winged teal, blue winged teal, you name it. There are so many species of duck that stop over and overwinter. They spend the winter here in the Atlanta area. And that is one of my favorite parts uh, of, of the wintertime. There's also, since... I love birds of prey. They're my favorite family of birds. There is a hawk that visits the southeast uh, only during the winter. It's called the sharp-shinned hawk. It's a small version of the Cooper's hawk, and they're about the size of a blue jay. They're really, really small, but they're very aggressive. They make up for their size with their their bite. Uh, they are very aggressive, very fierce, fearsome um, birds, and they grace our area during... Um, the winter time as well. So it's really great to see that. In addition to the last thing, the big giant flocks of blackbirds. So all throughout the year, we have red-winged blackbirds, we have common grackles, we have brown-headed cowbirds, we have European starlings that are all just doing their own things, uh, establishing their own separate territories and just finding food, raising babies. And then when winter rolls around, they all join forces. So you'll see flocks of three, 400 of them together in a field looking for food and their safety in numbers. So they're all watching out, they're all watching each other's backs and they're all gathering together. And that's always a fun time just to see them all flock together like that. If you're driving on I-20, either direction from Atlanta all the way to like Conyers during dawn and dusk, you'll see flocks of blackbirds fly over the highway as they, uh, in the morning, as they leave their overnight sleeping area to find food. And at dusk, you'll see them flying the opposite direction, returning to their overnight sleeping area. So it's really, really fun to see just waves of blackbirds fly over the highway. Well, it's fun to hear you talk because Jason Ward, your enthusiasm and passion for nature, for Birds in particular just make us want to be outside and look up in the sky. Thank you so very much for joining us again. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to come on and be a nerd about the birds. And I I <laughs> highly recommend exactly what you just said. I highly recommend folks get out there, spend a little bit of time in their yards or just in the in a local green space and even if you don't have binoculars, just close your eyes and allow yourself to hear the bird sounds and 
you know, take a couple deep breaths and things will start to get a little bit better. Birds are therapeutic. Jason Ward, Atlanta-based birder and host of the web series, Birds of North America. There will be more information and a link to the web series on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. Atlanta-based poet and Emory professor Jericho Brown won the 2020 Pulitzer Prize for his poetry collection, The Tradition. Brown's work explores themes of blackness, trauma, violence, queerness, and memory. I spoke with Jericho Brown about the tradition last year before his discussion at the Decatur Book Festival. He will give the keynote address at this year's festival, which begins online today. Here is Jericho Brown talking about the multi-layered meaning of fatherhood in his poetry. There are many ways to think about the word father in and of itself. Um, of course, when you say father, you're thinking about your dad, right? Uh, but then you might also be thinking about fatherland, right? If you think about father, that might be one way to think about uh, black people's relationships to the United States of America. In the diaspora, black people's relationship to anywhere that is in Africa uh, that black people are living, sort of a, a colonial relationship. If we think of motherland as, as Africa or West Africa or countries in West Africa, then the fatherland would be those uh, those nations that, that kidnapped people or that somehow uh, went to those nations in Africa and took them over, right? Mm. But then, of course, there's the father that we say when we're thinking about God. And one of the things that I do over and over again in my poem is I mix those three fathers because I'm thinking about that dedication and yet that rebellion mm -hmm. uh, that we all feel for any father that we have. Uh, you know, there comes a point at which you have to grow up and you have to take a stand. And I think that's how um, the word father works in so many of my poems. Uh, my poems are often poems of prayer, poems about prayer, and poems as prayer. And I think thinking about God as the father is one of the ways that that's seen in my poems. Let's turn from fatherhood to motherhood. Yeah. I was stunned by the power of four day in the morning. Yeah. Would you read it? Yeah, I'll read it for you. Four day in the morning, my mother grew morning glories that spilled onto the walkway toward her porch because she was a woman with land who showed as much by giving it color. She told me I could have whatever I worked for. That means she was an American. But she'd say it was because she believed in God. I am ashamed of America and confounded by God. I thank God for my citizenship in spite of the timer set on my life to write these words. I love my mother. I love black women who plant flowers as sheepish as their sons. By the time the blooms unfurl themselves for a few hours of light, the women who tend them are already at work. Blue, I'll never know who started the lie that we are lazy, but I'd love to wake that bastard up at 4 in the morning. <laughs> 
toss him in a truck, and drive him under God past every bus stop in America to see all those black folk waiting to go work for whatever they want. A house, a boy to keep the lawn cut, some color in the yard. My God, we leave things green. It's gorgeous. Thank you so much. And and. It's rife with metaphor, yeah, but the, the metaphor of women as flowers yeah. and also adding color yeah. and yeah. Oh, it's just gorgeous. Yeah. There are a lot of poems in this book uh, that are about my mother, and I was, I'm actually quite proud that I finally got her right in a book. You know, um, uh, she appears in this book over and over again, uh, powerful and melancholy and joyous and I really feel like I finally caught all of the colors that are within the woman I think of as my mother and I'm, I'm really proud of that in this book yeah fantastic this particular poem was um, in Time magazine it was the first time they published poems probably in something like I would say 60 or 70 years maybe more than that actually and I, I got all excited because I finally had a poem in a magazine that I could send to my mama. <laughs> oh, so much uh, for those esoteric literary yeah, journals, yeah, 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 yeah. which you've done you, you've done pretty well with those too. Yeah, Jericho, you've said that you think of writing first as a process of listening to some series of sounds that enter your mind, and second as a process of embodying those sounds. Mm -hmm. What's the role of voice and music in your poetry? Mm -hmm. Well, honestly, I think uh, poetry is best made when it begins in listening. We like to think about, I mean, again, I'm talking about prayer. Often we like to think about prayer as talking or asking for something. But when I think of prayer, I think of an opportunity to listen to uh, some higher self, to hear these voices, I think, or, or a voice that I think can be heard by us when we are made still. And if I'm still and I allow language to come to me and I deal with language for its beauty, for its for what it what it sounds like as material. You know, often when you think of language, you think of something that you can touch. Different words have different literal material feeling attached to them. Um, just to say the love hate, the word hate, and just to say the word love, you end up in two different frequencies, just hearing the words, you know. Um, so that's part of uh, what I mean when I when I say that. Um, I'm listening and I'm paying attention to where the words lead me. And sometimes the word leads lead to sound. I mean, if you're working with rhyme in particular, you will end up saying a word because it rhymes with another word. And because you choose that word, you have to figure out what your subconscious is saying, right? What do you really mean? Why did you choose that particular word? And you have to believe that it's not just because of how it sounds. It's because there's something telling you something. And that's how my poems are written. They're written by the fact that I believe there's some sort of otherworldly or supernatural part of myself that's trying to get in touch with the natural part of myself, the part Jerica, of myself here. I've heard uh, fiction writers and playwrights talk about something similar with characters mm -hmm. speaking to them or mm -hmm. coming to them. Mm -hmm. This makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. Your poem, The Stake, mm -hmm. confronts feelings of despair following gun violence. Mm -hmm. You write, how old will I get to be in a nation that believes we can grow 
out of a grave. Mm -hmm. Would you tell us more about this poem and read it if you like? Yeah, I'll read it. It's um, it's a very different poem for me, um, and you'll hear what I mean by different. Uh, it's is what I like to think of as innovative. And what I'm trying to do is catch several images at the same time um, as it relates to gun violence, as it relates to police violence, as it relates to all kinds of brutalities that we somehow survive, right? What this book is, I hope, really interested in isn't just... Uh, looking at these evils, but also looking at how it is that we remain human beings who fall in love in the midst of these evils. And that's what I'm really interested in when I, when I wrote this book. But let me, uh, I'll read Steak for you now. Steak. I am a they in most of America. Someone feels lost in the forest of we, so he can't imagine a single tree. He can't bear it across a crucifixion such a christian all that wood headed his way in the fact of a man or a woman who might as well be a secret so serious his need to see inside to cut down to tell how old will i get to be in a nation that believes we can grow out of a grave can reach climb high as the first state bank take a bullet break through concrete the sidewalk the street someone crosses when he sees wilderness where he wanted his city, his cross tie, his telephone pole, timber, timbre. It's an awful sound, and people pay to hear it. People say bad things about me, though they don't know my name. I have a name, a stake. I settle, dig, die, go underground, tunnel the ocean floor, root, shoot up like a thought someone planted. Someone planted an idea of me, a lie, a lawn jockey, the myth of a wooded hamlet in America, a thicket, hell, a patch of sunlit grass where any one of us bursts into one someone as whole as we. Oh, you begin with in the very first line this matter of identity and, mm -hmm. and being marginalized mm -hmm. or unseen and take us through current horrors mm -hmm. going on in this country. You've addressed the proximity of violence to love. Mm -hmm. Would you unpack that a bit? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, when you're writing a poem and what I try to encourage my students to do is to be uh, as deep and complex as their lives actually are. Uh, and we like to think about poems as Hallmark cards, but they're not Hallmark cards. You know, the difference between poetry and, and what happens at Hallmark is Hallmark is trying to capture a single emotion, right? Uh, but nobody lives in a single emotion. Love is not love untainted. You know, your children get on your nerves. Your parents get on your nerves. Your brothers and sisters get on your nerves. Uh, your, your spouse gets on your nerves. Do you understand what I mean? But that does not mean you do not love them. Do you understand what I'm saying? Uh, so what I'm trying to do in my poems is over and over again put these things together because that's where they belong. We are human beings, and if we are indeed in touch with our emotions, if, we're, um, if we are um, okay with feeling our emotions, uh, then we're going to feel several, several emotions in a single day. Um, the joke that I like to tell my friends is, you know, I have a, a, a meditation practice, a spiritual practice. Every day before I leave my house, I do some kind of prayer. 
but it doesn't take very long for me to get from my house into my car and around the corner to traffic before I'm this close to a cuss word. And that doesn't mean one of those is invalid. It just means that they both exist in the, in the single person. Hmm. It has been noted with the tradition that you invented your own poetic structure and form mm -hmm. that takes features from many established forms. Mm -hmm. Now, for those who are not highly educated in the subject <laughs> of poetry, can you explain the duplex form? Yeah, I'll read. I'll read the cento to you. I'll, I'll I'll first tell you what the form is. The form actually merges three other forms. The huzzle, which is a, a form from something like uh, eight or nine century. <laughs> A.D. from Persia. The sonnet, which we're more familiar with, which was taken uh, from the Italians, uh, from Petrarch, and then moved on by Shakespeare and Milton and others during the Elizabethan era. And then uh, it also takes the blues form, which is a form that is wholly American and developed here uh, by women, as a matter of fact, um, and then in poetry by Langston Hughes. And that form is a musical form, but also a poetic form. Mm -hmm. And I take that form, those three forms, and I put them together into one. And there's also a requirement about syllables. I mean, since I'm talking about it, every line of a duplex is nine to 11 syllables long. Oh, oh, wow. <laughs> so I had to approximate um, syllabics and iambic pentameter. And that was the way that I wanted to marry East and West. You know, a lot of Eastern forms are by syllabics and a lot of Western forms are by rhythm. So I put those things all together and I made this form. And the poem that you're asking me to read, as a matter of fact, pushes it one step more toward difficulty. Uh, the last poem in the book is not just a duplex, it's also a cento. A cento, I'm sure listeners just love this. A cento is a poem that takes all of its lines from other poems. And so the difference between this cento and all the other centos in the world is you usually take those lines from other poems by other poets. But this cento takes all of its lines from the other duplexes in the book. So it's literally a, a, a poem made up of all the other poems in the same form. So I'll read it to you now. You get a college professor talking and that's what happens. Here we go. Duplex, cento. My last love drove a burgundy car, color of a rash, a symptom of sickness. We were the symptoms, the road our sickness. None of our fights ended where they began. None of the beaten end where they begin. Any man in love can cause a messy corpse. But I didn't want to leave a messy corpse obliterated in some lilied field. Stench obliterating lilies of the field. The murderer, young and unreasonable. He was so young, so unreasonable. Steadfast and awful, tall as my father. Steadfast and awful, my tall father was my first love. He drove a burgundy car. Okay, one need not understand the <laughs> complexity to feel the power of mm -hmm. that, but thank mm -hmm. you for the mm -hmm. explanation. Yeah, yeah. Finally, Jericho, I, I must ask, while many of your themes address issues of contemporary black life and the importance of folklore, mm -hmm. the ancestors, your work conveys 
reference to classical Greek poetry, to the examples, the very esoteric academic examples you brought us. Regarding the title of this beautiful collection, what tradition are you honoring? Yeah, all of them. Uh, The title is here because I have to be true and be honest about the amalgam of a man that I am. And being black in this country or being really anybody in this country, but in particular being black in this country means taking on um, several identities. You know, I'm a black queer man from the South. I'm not what we expect when we say the word poet, even till today. And so I want to um, I want to make it clear that poetry in the English language, poetry from all over the world, um, Southern poetry, black poetry, uh, that it's all who I am. Uh, and that's what's coming out in this book. Pulitzer Prize winning poet, scholar, and director of the Creative Writing Program at Emory University, Jericho Brown. He'll give the virtual keynote address at the Decatur Book Festival today at 2.30 p.m. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and cultural life. Monday, we'll bring you a Labor Day special featuring Studs Terkel. It's called The Working Tape. City Lights will be back Tuesday at 11 a.m. Our theme music is The First Time, written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band. Special thanks to Hot Shoe Records. City Lights producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. He also produced The Birding Piece with Jason Ward. I'm Lois Reitzes, and I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Listen back to interviews and check out our show's archives at wabe.org slash citylights. And you can download the new City Lights podcast wherever you subscribe. Here's wishing you a safe and good Labor Day weekend. Thanks for listening to WABE. Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.